Alright folks, I'm going to do another one. This one is The Performing Artist as the Shaman of Higher Civilization by Gloria Flaherty, published in 1988, John Hopkins University Press. Alright, shamanism is a very complex phenomenon that has been considered exotic, if not quixotic, throughout all of history, at least the history recorded by members of Western European civilization. In most cultures the world over, there are women as well as men who exhibit both the need and the ability to induce in themselves the kinds of experiences that take them to the brink of permanent madness or even death. Those experiences include depersonalization and fragmentation, in addition to feelings of weightlessness, ascensionism, or flying, and bio and and bilocation. There are as many words referring to these practitioners as there are tribes supporting such practices. In some areas of the globe, they are referred to as Cam Angikok. Ojun or Tadib, while in others they are known as the Piae, Curandero, Wizard, Soothsayer, Faith Healer, Shaman, or Superstar, depending on the dialect of the particular tribe. Interesting. Despite the potentially painful crashing during subsequent re entry into everyday reality, they are supposed to be able to relate their experiences in a way that somehow touches their fellow tri tribesmen and does them some good. See, this is this is this is great. Like, I love that this is a. I'm assuming this is a woman writing this. It's it has a completely different perspective, and I love that. Versus most of the time when it's just men writers, it's usually just very rigid, structured. Uh, it's good, I mean, for, you know, facts and... But I've noticed women writers, when I read them, they are very... the what. It's a different... It, it, you feel... It's a closer type of getting to know type thing. Anyways, the shamans prognosticate through their visions, or they wield and bend the future through their communications with the spirit world, or they provide catharsis, catharsis through ecstatic rites grounded in psychotropic substances, or the kinds of vest vestibular stimulations that come from jumping, running, or frenetic dancing to loud music and fluctuating lights within an enclosed space, nowadays referred to as runner's high, disco high, or free fall high. Great shamans are masters of ventriloquism and legger domain. They understand about speaking in tongues or voices, about laying on hands, and about diverting a subject's attention. In addition, they instinctively know when and how to employ music, dance, costume, 
and all the other components of theatrical performance. Exactly. Recently, shamanism has become a rather hot topic with the media and the popular press. That was back in 1988. Huh, interesting. <laughs> Elsewhere in the world, as well as here in the United States of America, journalists have appropriated the word, applying it diversely so as to make it a still trendier verbal convention. In addition to the issue of People magazine featuring Michael Jackson as a magician or born-again shaman, there have been the numerous articles in Time calling performers like Bob Dylan, John Belushi, and Shirley MacLaine shamans. A recent issue commemorating Liberace reported that he also often suggested that he enjoyed special spiritual grace and some fans concluded he had faith healing powers whether the new york times is intellectually a notch or two above those magazines is irrelevant the word shaman often appears in its entertainment section their reviewers refer to the international operatic stars brought into the metropolitan opera interestingly enough so far not the city opera, as shamans. In the late 1980s, it seems to be no longer sufficient to praise a performer's talent or genius. He and an occasional she must absolutely be categorized as a shaman, the feminine form of the word, namely shamanka. Really? I didn't know that. Has not yet gained any currency. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Perhaps because, like babushka, sounds too frumpy to the consumers of high art. The reverence uh, for things shamanic has also spread to other middle class groups like those who subscribe to the Smithsonian. An, in <laughs> an illustrated article about the world premiere of Janice Mattox's computerized opera Shaman on September 29th 1984 at Stanford University described the performance combining multi-track tapes plus four or so four or so live performers. The reporter seemed intrigued by the possibility that the participants had formed a group in search of its acronym Center for Computer Research and Music, purposely pronounced Karma. Wow. <laughs> The readers of art journals and exhibition catalogs have also developed great interest in shamanism, largely due to Joseph Buse and his fellow purveyors of multimedia events, happenings, and actions. Op, pop, and hop were the 1960s designations. Buse was rescued by Tartars. Interesting which when his Luftwaffe aircraft was shot down during World War II, those tribesmen used fat and felt to fix him up, so Buse adapted the like as his early sculpting materials. He went on to experiment with including sound, especially music, as an equally vi viable medium for sculpture. Hmm. As Buse himself explained during an interview in English in 1978, so when I appear as a kind of shamanistic figure or allude to it, I do it to stress my belief in other priorities 
and the need to come up with a completely different plan for working with substances. For instance, in places like universities, where everyone speaks so rationally, it is necessary for a kind of enchanter to appear. I mean, that's a, yeah, I guess, uh, sure. Many of the drawings views entitled Shaman were contained in the ex exhibition sponsored by London's renowned Victoria and Albert Museum, which also brought out a very impressive catalog of them in 1983. Some of those drawings were studies for so-called shamanic happenings, the most startling of which had to have been coyote. It constituted the three days Buse spent in the carefully delimited space of New York Art Gallery, together with a live coyote, a cane, much straw, 50 copies of the Wall Street Journal, a triangle and a tape recording of chaotic turbine sounds wrapped in an enormous felt blanket and wearing the trilby hat he insisted was shamanic he was carried in and out on a stretcher and transported to and fro in an ambulance such events as well as the present media use of present media term media use of the term shaman are really not too hard to explain there has been a gradual absorption from loftier heights of intellectual inquiry thinking of a kind of versunken's culture gut is probably not altogether wrong during the 1940s and 50s when all the social scientists sciences were advancing mercilessly Reports about field work in so-called primitive societies received increasing attention. The two names that stood out then and continue to stand out now are those of Claude Levi-Strauss and Mercia Eliada. <laughs> While the latter analyzed those reports in order to interpret the, sh interpret the shaman as an archaic religious ecstatic the former compared the shaman to a more modern psychiatrist stressing his salutary efforts for given audiences. Levi Strauss went on to, to elaborate. The modern version of shamanic technique called psychoanalysis thus derives its, its specific characteristics from the fact that in industrial civilization there is no longer any room for mythical time except within man himself. From this observation, psychoanalysis can draw confirmation of, the, of its validity as well as hope of strengthening its theoretical foundations and understanding better the reasons for its effectiveness by comparing its methods and goals with those of its precursors, the shamans and sorcerers. Huh, I kind of like this guy. I like the way he thinks. I'm going to... Claude Levi Strauss. Okay. With the 1960s, there dawned not only the highly taunted age of Aquarius, but also an age of increasing intellectual arrogance. Talented people like Jerome Rothenberg, who edited the still valuable anthology Technicians of the Sacred, asserted that it was 
precisely the new Western interest in the oral tribal cultures of the Third World that had been responsible for such a massive popular return to intuition and instinct as had ever been experienced on the face of this planet. He even went into print claiming that the beat poets along with Rainer Maria Rilke, Arthur Rimbaud, and the various generations of Dadaists with their attempts to combine words, music, dance, and event, all represented neo-shamanisms. Hmm. The explanation Rothenberg gave for the manipulation of the creative imagination is as follows. Our ideas of poetry, including significantly our idea of the poet, began to look back consciously to the early and late shamans of those other worlds not as a title to be seized, but as a model for the shaping of meanings and intensities through language. As the reflection of our yearning to create a meaningful ritual life, a life lived at the level of poetry, that looking back related to the emergence of a new poetry and art rooted in performance and in the oldest, most universal of human traditions. By the mid-1970s, French intellectuals had so often invoked the word shaman, really, in their debates as to make it a kind of theoretical buzzword. Roland Barthes, focusing on the subject of voice in The Death of the Author, for example, had written that in primitive societies, narrative is never undertaken by a person but by a mediator, a shaman or speaker, whose performance may be admired, that is, his mastery of the, na of the narrative code, but not his genius. Uh, Christopher Nolan, probably modern day Shakespeare. I think he's got shamanic visions. Even James Cameron, uh, Ridley Scott, um, uh, I would say they have shamanic vision. Okay. Um, Barthes did not, however, detail what he understood or meant by that still rather elusive word shaman. Jacques, Jacques Derrida, like so many of his countrymen searching for answers, went back to ancient as well as 18th century texts to explain the, es the essence of performance, among other things. His conclusion was that Plato is bent on presenting writing as an occult and therefore suspect power. Just like painting, to which he will later compare it, and like optical illusions and the techniques of mimesis in general, his mistrust of the maniac, his mistrust of the mantic and magic, of sorcerers and casters of spells is well attested. The role of so of Socrates, the role of Socrates as a pharmacius or sorcerer, magician, shaman was apparently definitive, definitively illustrated for Derrida by the. I agree, all these fuckers were shamans. I think uh, Paul also. I think 
Carried about the passage in the symposium where I think Shakespeare would have shown to symposium where comparison is made to the shamanic power of Marcias, the flute playing satire satire. I think the section where Socrates is being addressed by Alcibiades is worth quoting at length in order to clarify matters somewhat. And are you not a flute player? Yes, all the okay, so shamans, let me give you a picture. A shaman can is it, like knows how to use music, language, acting. Can or doesn't have to, but communicate with animals. Has like lots of animals. Friends, helpers, blah blah blah. Or can. Um, just something about them. Alright, anyways. And are you not a flute player? The, the Pied Piper? I think with a shaman. That you are, and a far more wonderful performer than Marcias, for he indeed with instruments charmed the souls of men by the power of his breath, as the performers of his music do still, for the melodies of Olympus are derived from the teaching of Marcias, and these, where they are played by a great master or by a miserable flute girl have a power which no others have they alone possess the soul and reveal the wants of those who have the who have needs of gods and mysteries because they are inspired but you produce the same effect with the voice and do not require the flute that is the difference between you and him when we hear any other speaker even a very good one his words produce absolutely no effect upon us in comparison Whereas the very fragments of you and your words, even at second hand, and however imperfectly repeated, amaze and possess the souls of every man, woman, and child who comes within hearing of them. And if I were not afraid that you would think me drunk, I would have sworn, as well as spoken to the influence which they have always had and still have over me, for my heart leaps within me more than any more than that of any Corybantian reveler, and my eyes rain tears when I hear them, and I observe that many others are affected in the same way. To return to the here and now of the 1980s, it would seem that the word shaman has developed into a shibboleth for those associated with the Milwaukee Center uh, for 20th Century Studies. Their shaman seems to have somehow become intimately tied to postmodernism, a concept purposely derived from Arnold Toynbee and given currency by Ihab Hassan. Michel Bonamou has gone so far as to contend that performance if not shamanism itself, is the unifying mode of the postmodern. Neither Toynbee, Hassan, nor Benamu has, however, shown any historical accountability for their use 
of that vocabulary. Not one of them has offered a precise ex explanation of just what is meant within which context. The result is that we are left with nothing but confusion. My uh, theory, assumption, is that actors who go uh, full uh, method that is basically shamanism, dude. The fucking documentary of fucking Jim Carrey uh, basically being in that character all the time. What the fuck do you think shamanism is? The shaman gets possessed by an ancestor or whatever. Like these people, these performers, when they say, I'm channeling this spirit or so-and-so. What the fuck do you think? that? What do you, most of these performers... Are using sound and music. <laughs> Come on. And and lyrics. And that's what it is. That's because, yeah. They might not know that they basically are shamans. Plus they have all this clout and big social media, media following. So it's like literally <laughs> fucking Life of Brian. <laughs> Don't follow me. <laughs> like, alright. As these lengthy introductory remarks must indicate, the word shaman has come to mean many things to many people. Dis disentangling the multitude of often contradictory strands without diluting or destroying any of them has been a far more enormous job than I originally suspected alright so just yesterday I was watching um, the, the series Life on Fire on Amazon Prime by Volcanoes narrated by, narrated by Scar himself um, what's his name Jeffrey Daniels no no not Jeffrey Daniels sorry let me look it up it will take me a second. Life on fire. Jeremy Irons. <laughs> Sorry. Jeremy Irons, who uh, voiced Scar's character, he narrates... Uh, this series about volcanoes and it was episode number two volcano doctors where they had a shaman in in uh, what was the volcano it was in South America some big ass volcano that exploded Anyways, there was a shaman there, and they interviewed him, and the shaman said something. I might just, like, upload. Anyways, he said, like, um, what was the volcano's name? Nevado. The volcano's name was Nevado. He, or he called her Nevado. Well, anyways, he said, Nevado is, is, uh, is angry because um, we have stopped um, respecting her or, or you know 
yeah, respecting her, and that's why she has done this to remind us that she's angry. And then he said, even if, or he said, um, and it will not end until she has uh, killed enough people to to be respected again, or something like that. And he said, even if, let's say, she dies, he said, her daughters will uh, <laughs> come up and, you know, keep doing this until she has, you know, basically had her say, basically. And he said, the shamans, you know, it, it's, it's sad, or something like, um, it's not good because the shamans are not telling their stories or they're not in the more there's not enough shamans anymore something like that and yeah that is what <laughs> that is what Moses was doing bruh <laughs> he was a shaman going up to a volcano Mount Sinai which is the god Sin which is a moon god, Sinai, which is in Saudi Arabia. Anyways, I'm gonna shut the fuck up. Let me just keep reading. Of all of all the many many words in my in many languages and dialects designating the phenomenon, the one that came from the Sanskrit Shramana Shrama, and was transmitted through. The Siberian Tunguis or early explorers is one that happened to become the generic term before the end of the 18th century. So, in this one, this lady does say that it came from the Sanskrit Shramana and went up to Siberia. Who knows? Those explorers were mostly native Germans, or they were trained in Germany, or they acknowledged German as the up-and-coming language of scientific discourse. Not to be forgot forgotten is that from 1714 on, England was ruled by the German-speaking Hanoverians, whose support of exploration and research led to many cross-channel cooperative ventures. As a result, in use during the 18th century were the nouns der shaman, die shamanka, and das shamanentum, while the verb was shamanen, shamanen. Hmm. Interesting, I didn't know that. That shaman gained acceptance as the generic term so long ago should not be surprising given the fact that enlightenment, which even back then had its double meaning, was sought on various planes and in many ways. I really like this writer, man. She fucking, this is, I think so far, this is the, the most, uh, anyways, hold up. Basically, she's saying what I was about to say. 
as male-dominated scientific professionalism burgeoned to go along with Michel Foucault, Michel Foucault, things that were rationally inexplicable, like the power associated with the horrible knowledge of the wise women, the witches, or shamankas, were condemned. Fucking men, man. We're such little fucktards, man. God damn. Like, imagine where we would have been if we just weren't such little fucking little bitches, man. Like, just... God damn, man. We think we're the smartest monkey. We're the smartest sex. Like, god damn. Who the fuck... (sighs) This is what I'm saying. I hate it when... Time is wasted because of stupid people. I hate it when that happens. Stupid people hold back progress, and I cannot stand that. Such things, however, did not disappear. They remained operative, yet went underground, so as to provoke continuing research and reflection. During the 18th century, the whole globe, with its inhabitants, natural resources, and potential for investment, as well as political power, suddenly became the object of avid investigation. The conquistadors and missionaries of past centuries were supplanted by academically trained observers, collectors, and measurers. The solitary explorers as well as the large teams all dependent on some or another kind of European financial support. There were monies from religious orders like the Society of Jesus. There were the grants of the British Association for promoting the study of Africa. And there were the munificent coffers of the Russians, especially Catherine the Great, who wanted to gain information about a vast realm that sorely needed consolidating if it were ever to be exploited. As to be supposed, such funding came with certain strings attached. Those strings often limited the dissemination of findings, if not the freedom of intellectual inquiry, of course. Because anytime you need to do something, you need money, and with money, there's always strings attached. So, this is the problem. Alright. The instructions Catherine gave to one expedition outlined not only the topics to be observed, but also the means for doing so. She fiercely opposed the women men, that is, the transvestites, transvestites, associated with shamanism for they neither helped to increase the population of her empire nor did they enrich its coffers by supplying valuable pelts they simply were not hunters yeah come to think of it i'm thinking uh what's uh okay so caitlin jenner right she she could have shamanic, uh, maybe, who knows? Because that is a thing of, uh, like, 
Anyways, or even the fucking, um, the Wachowski brothers who are now the Wachowski sisters. Yeah. Shamans, maybe. Who knows? Maybe they should take a shaman test. And anyways. <laughs> anyways. Um. Okay. She, they simply were not hunters. She thought their superstitious practices and the gullibility of their followers underscored the need to introduce the Enlightenment swiftly and efficiently. By that, she meant doing what the Inquisition had given the conquistadors the mandate to do in the Americas a few centuries earlier, namely exterminate the homosexuals and eradicate all traces of their rituals as well as the mind-altering substances they tended to use. Oh my goodness. This is huge. I need to fucking... <laughs> that is, um... Wow. That's not something they teach you in history class. Alright. Let me read that again. Uh, they simply were not hunters. She thought their superstitious practices and the gullibility of their followers underscored the need to introduce the Enlightenment swiftly and efficiently. This is uh, Catherine the Great of Russia. By that, she meant doing what the Inquisition had given the conquistadors the mandate to do in the Americas a few centuries earlier, namely exterminate the homosexuals and eradicate all traces of their rituals as well as the mind-altering substances they tended to use. Many scientists, scientists complained bitterly about the entire assumptive system that underlay such 18th century exploration. <clears throat> Some, like George Forster, thought of European mercantilism as science gone awry. It seemed to be the literal application of what Francis Bacon had written about taming, shaping, and subduing Mother Nature as in his statement, I am come in very truth leading to you nature with all her children to bind her to your service and make her your slave. Good luck, motherfucker. It is more than just interesting that so many of those who lodged such protests had received their academic training, usually in classical philology, history, and medicine, at the university considered politically safe enough to become the repository for the artifacts from the South Seas collected by Captain James Cook. The university at Gottingen, founded in mid-18th century by the Hanoverians, seems to have imbued its students with reverence for Mother Nature in addition to encouraging the intellectual curiosity associated with male-dominated scientific professionalism. Those 18th century men who set out to explore this planet from the New World to the frozen Arctic and arid Siberian wilderness, to the warm South Pacific islands and hot African deserts, did the job they were sent out to do. They submitted measurements and, in most instances, 
copious sketches and illustrations accompanied their maps and diagrams. They also sent back artifacts, costumes, weapons, utensils, musical instruments, as well as all kinds of, of herbs and seeds indigenous to the particular geographical place. Boom! I told you. I fucking told you there has to be some fucking motherfuckers out there who know all this shit. I told you. Equally important were the lengthy descriptions about matters pertaining to the lifestyles of the native inhabitants with whom they had contact. Reports by those who considered themselves first-hand observers were quickly published, sometimes in installments as soon as they arrived in Europe, and other times simultaneously in two or three languages. Hmm. That information was picked up by scholars most comfortably in const academic academicians academic issues ensconced academicians who analyzed it and shared it with other colleagues who thereupon provided interpretations for the European reading public which never seemed to learn enough about the other parts of the world yeah sell the story man the next filtration came from the compilers of dictionaries and encyclopedias. Exactly. Google. Do no evil. It's a repository of knowledge. Knowledge. <laughs> Alright. Um, um, and then. Yeah like. Uh, how Oxford or Cambridge. Had a monopoly on. Information basically. Back in the day. How How the. Vatican, the Book of Eli, man, fucking a, dude. The people who have all the information, the people who know all of it, the whole story, versus the rest of us. We only know what. <laughs> this that's all it is. What you know and what you don't know. I'd rather know more than know less. Ignorance is not bliss, man. Ignorance is bliss. It means you're getting fucked. It's already too late. <laughs> All right. Um, reports by those who considered themselves first-hand observers were quickly published, sometimes in installments. Okay, right that. Blah blah blah. The next filtration came. Okay, inside. and then there was the still further filtering by the popularizers, who oftentimes exploited the enormous market for folio-sized picture books, or more importantly, for children's books, of course. And of course, there were also those who have been classified as travel liars. That's not saying, man. God damn, man. Just, just, god damn, man. Anyways, whatever the level of scientific objectivity or truth might or might not have been, the average literate 18th century European rarely failed to read the latest publication. Such publications were the talk of the moral weeklies, the sources for the latest dress fashions, the subjects of new operas, the topic of lectures by philosophers as renowned as Immanuel Kant, and the means whereby Frederick Schiller 
inadvertently caused the students of the University of Jena to up and riot in support of the study of universal history. Other 18th century dramatists were also smitten with travel reports, as were many novelists, composers, uh, people of the theater, and critical theorists. Although there were many matters about other parts of the world that attracted 18th century Europeans, the ubiquitous phenomenon of shamanism, with its self-induced cure for a self-induced fit, thoroughly captured their imagination and their interest. One result was that a steadily increasing number of people began to think more and more often about the creative personality and its potential for receptivity. Another related result was the European reflection about enthusiasm, madness, spirit possession, convulsionaries, and the arts of performance, upon which everything else seemed to hinge. They then content they then contemplated the implications of daring and brickmanship, and they went on to reconsider what they had heard about the transport of Longinus and the infectious rings of inspiration mentioned by Plato's rhapsodist Ion. Gradually, the theoretical focus shifted from the work to the person or persons who made that work come alive. That creature, whether labeled a genius or a shaman in the 18th century, did not convince his audience logically, nor did he persuade like an orator. He was not really an imitator. Like Plato's Ion, he was a shaman or a kind of channeler, Yet another word current in today's media and popular press. He somehow was or became the real thing in order to transmit his creative trance to that audience so as to transport them momentarily out of themselves into other cosmic regions where they themselves could experience the mysteries of the universe. Yeah, I think a lot of DJs do this too, using music. They are blasting your fucking consciousness into God knows where. Plus all these fuckers that raves and everything are high on all kinds of shit anyways. That's exactly what we're doing. Nothing, there's nothing new under the sun, man. There's nothing new under the sun. Alright. Um, in other words, the genius or shaman allowed the common person, if ever so briefly, to comprehend the meaning of birth, life, death, and regeneration. Before I turn to aesthetic theory and then literature, I should like to discuss the kind of information about shamanism available to Western Europeans in the 18th century. During earlier centuries, zealous members of various orthodox religions worked assiduously to convert those who staunchly held to shamanism. Look, all religion means is city Folk bringing in dumb fucks from the country using whatever your religion is. Here, sell me this pen. That's a fucking religion. Whatever it is. Is these bright lights in the cities bringing in all these dumb animals from outside the cities and then putting their ass to work. 
and this has been globalized and the system has been just perfected refined so that one class of humans don't have to do shit ever their whole lives for generations while the rest of us have to run on the treadmill why because well <laughs> you gotta pay taxes why well because the king said i mean the because you have to why i don't know because you have to <laughs> what if i don't well then we put you in jail why because you have to <laughs> Oh my god, alright. Whether... <laughs> the king owns all the land. Go watch fucking, uh... Monty Python, um... The Holy Grail. <laughs> oh my god, man, it's fucking comedy. Like you can't complain because you can't the whole thing separating the wheat from the chaff it's 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 life doesn't work like that even the Bible it says God sends the rain on the wicked and the just okay it's the the story Alan Watts would say about the the Chinese farmer it's like oh good oh bad oh good oh bad it's like it's I think our job alright I'm gonna I'm shut the fuck up let me just read whether Christians among the Laps Buddhists among the Buryats or Lamaists among the Tibetans they were almost always intrigued by the practices of the natives those in Lapland insisted upon viewing such practices careful, carefully in order to learn just what they were up against. There are many reports which Johannes Schaeffer incorporated into his book Laponia in 1675, all told of the shaman singing, dancing, jumping around, and working himself up into an ecstatic state whereby he eventually fell to the ground in a death-like stupor. You know who else I think is a shaman? Mr. Tony Robbins. Alright. Um, mention of the magical accoutrements, the drum, the triangle, and the rattle was hardly ever omitted. Upon reviving, the shaman stressed that his soul had left his body and flown off to do his, its business with the spirits in their world. To prove he had actually flown away and thus establish his credibility, he presented his audience with an object or a token of something he purposely found beyond the rainbow. It's basically like even magicians, like that's where it came from I think. 
and Beyond the Rainbow, Leprechauns, all that shit, yes. Then he provided the answers he had set out to obtain. Many missionaries thought conversion would be swift in coming as long as they, as long as they confiscated the shaman's paraphernalia. Even when seemingly successful, the result, as the result as we know from a report written 100 years later, was to force shamanistic practices underground out of general accessible public view. I think Cain and Abel. I think Abel was a shaman. Cain killed him and went and built cities. What do you need to build a wall for to keep? enemies out why do you have enemies because well yeah it's the same story man the natives began developing clever strategies to counteract what they viewed as attacks by a vicious new enemy their seances were held secretly if a shaman still had his tambourine rattle mask an outfit with all its spangles, teeth, and feathers, he hid them. You know the movie The Mask with Jim Carrey? I think Jim Carrey could also be a shaman. Anyways. Otherwise, he conjured them up at need. That is, he made believe. A lot of uh, union... Um, psychotherapy... You are literally acting it out. So you get the patient or whatever into that state where they can go back to that memory or moment and relive it. Except this time they have all their friends and families and therapists or whatever around and they have all the right things needed to overcome that moment and they do it whether physically using props or whatever and they do it in the dark with eyes closed hmm imagine that shamans do the same thing anyways i think i think video games also are could be very shamanic there are certain video games that I know people who play video games, I know that they know they just get lost in. Yeah, because... Look, man, your soul... You'll do shit that... <laughs> if When you look back, well... Anyways. I think it's... Everything can be used, man. Video games, good ones with... It's 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 the hero's journey. You are literally using this video game and yourself as the the character, which is the analogy of life itself, basically. And you have the controller in your hands, and you're the one in control. That's the perfect analogy of life. There you go. <laughs> well. That's one good way of looking at it. Alright. Okay. I hate it, man. When I look, when I lose. Okay. There are seances. Okay, if a shaman still has a blah, blah, blah. Otherwise, he can't. Okay, some natives. 
some natives were reported as openly stating that Christian sermons and devotionals adversely influenced their old practices, rendering them mostly inoperable. Hmm. One shaman bitterly complained that his body now always stayed on earth instead of joining his soul for the trip over the rainbow as it was supposed to do. Interesting. Distortions of the missionaries' teachings produced continu continuing confusion in beliefs. This was exemplified by a shaman who tried to be concilia conciliatory <laughs> and heartily agreed that heaven was indeed a most wonderful place. He reported to his Christian minister that he knew it as a fact for he had taken a flight there to check it out for himself. Would you believe that? Another shaman refused to believe that Jesus Christ could be anything other than the chief shaman of all shamans. Exactly. <laughs> for he had not only flown off to the he heavens himself, but he had also arranged the departure times and flight plans for many of his friends and relatives. Yet another icebound shaman had learned from a Christian missionary that there were internal parts of the earth where souls experienced immortality and constant warmth, so he decided he would prefer to journey in that direction. <laughs> <laughs> Information about the innumerable manifestations of shamanism <laughs> proliferated so quickly in the first half of the 18th century that even the dictionaries, encyclopedias, and reference works whose standard repositories of conventional knowledge treated the subject at length. A German one published in 1745 included mention of the clothing decorated with feathers, animal teeth, and an assortment of iron doodads, each meaningful in its own way. The effect of music, at least rhythm and movement, marked by the tambourine and rattle was mentioned as was the chanting, the crying out, and the croaking. The whole dramatic process leading up to the trance was described, whereupon we read that the following usually happened. Alright, so all this is in German, and I don't know how to read that, so I'm gonna... The large picture books so popular at mid-century were creations of the relentlessly emerging publishing industry. Shamanism remained a topic in them because it was shockingly superstitious and sexually titillating, and besides, it helped to sell big, beautiful, expensive books. Their illustrations, even with the best of intentions, derived more from contemporary opera and ballet poses than from any kind of genuine first-hand observation. The reports submitted by explorers out in the field were, as to be expected at mid-century, colored by the rationalistic tendencies of the day. Yeah, it's all, but it's all a game of telephone. By the time 
by the time you get it over here, it's been through so many filters. Alright, um... In more than one way, those explorers helped to finish what the religious missionaries had begun, namely forcing the believers of shamanism to go into hiding, or at least to get out of all to public sight. Johann George Clemen, Cle Mellon, the G is silent, who spent 10 years investigating and researching in Siberia, published his observations at mid-century. In that four-volume work, which opened with an encomiastic poem by the famous physician Albrecht von Haller, he repeatedly acknowledged widespread shamanistic practices. However, he again and again wrote how he had pointed out to the believers that they were being deluded by perpetrators of hoaxes. He related specific incidents revealing the ventriloquism, the sleight of hand, and the fancy as well as not so fancy tricks used by whatever kinds of shamans were in residence. Uh, so it's like all the hmm. okay as word spread about the kind of inquiries he made many of the local shamans simply avoided appearing in his presence Mellon recognized the theoreticality of their sessions what with stage mask costume drum dance and song and he, he even went so far as to imply that they were mediocre performers who got so carried away with their roles that their movements seemed to consist of ver whatever. What appalled him most of all was the fathomless gullibility and hopeless ignorance of the believers in shamanism. The substances shamans used for inducing ecstasy had been for long-standing interest to Europeans. Even as late as 1760, a Spanish missionary published the following among the questions for those Indians preparing for the sacraments. Has matado a alguna? Okay, this is... Among the missionaries, peyote was known to be from the devil for it gave superhuman strength to those who would do all kinds of extraordinary things like sing and dance all night long. <laughs> Fucking neighbor. It's like literally history has been a fight back against the Vatican. <laughs> culture, art, all this shit has been a fight back against oh my goodness similar experiences were had by Stephen Krascheny Nikau who wrote a history of oh my god, look at that Kamchatka and the Kuril Islands in the 1760s this is this is a peninsula in Russia it's Full of volcanoes. Kamchatka. 
it's amazing. It's an amazing place, apparently. I mean, it it just look of it. It's it looks epic. Bears, fucking, it's crazy. Okay. He studied the kinds of mushrooms that were consumed and their effects on bodily functions. His description in a chapter devoted to shamans, conjurers, witches, and interpreters of dreams is as follows. The first symptom of a man's being affected with this liquor is a trembling in all his joints, and in half an hour he begins to rave as if in a fever and is either merry or melancholy mad according to his particular constitution. Some jump, dance, and sing, others weep and are in terrible agonies, a small hole appearing to them as a great pit and a spoonful of water as a lake. Hmm, sounds like some of those mystic poets. Romy. But this is to be understood of those who use it to excess. For taken in small quantity, it raises their spirits and makes them brisk, courageous, and cheerful. Yeah, microdosing mushrooms. Who would have thought? Anyone intoxicated from drinking the liquor of that particular mushroom was urged to save his urine in a vessel. Hmm, interesting. It was supposed to be as effective as the original, if not more so. Kraschenko did not fail to add that one of the brave young Cossacks in his party tried it and nearly died. <laughs> in the last quarter of the 18th century, the expeditions usually included physicians, anthropologists, linguists, and ethnographers as well as botanists, zoologists, and geologists. Many of the expeditions even may even had an illustrator and a cartographer along. The numerous materials they sent back were long and detailed. Almost always included were sections on shamanism and what its and what its adherents were doing were doing in order to preserve their beliefs in the face of uninterrupted assaults from more orthodox and more powerful systems, whether religious, political, or scientific. George Wilhelm Steller's work on Kamchatka appeared in the 1770s. It supplied very carefully executed illustrations showing how the local shamans engendered in themselves something comparable to a para, 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 oh my. Parox, paroxysmum von Kalten 5 I don't know sorry John Gottlieb Georgi whose field work in the remote Russian provinces was considered ex exemplary during his own time produced a number of publications during the late 18th century in each he took up what had by then become the exceedingly fashionable subject of shamanism. His, observa his observations led him to consider it a primordial religious form in which males usually dominated females in spite of the fact that they tended to be at least equally effective as regards healing, 
divining and prognosticating. Those shamankas and shamans prided themselves in their ability to deal with the other world and with the spirits populating that great beyond somewhere over the rainbow. The descriptions Georgie gave of the seances he himself witnessed began in the usual way. He wrote that the practitioners sang, danced, and played themselves into an ecstatic state, trembling, shaking, and sweating. So then, C.S. is all German. After such prolonged carrying on, they fell into an incontestable stupor. So in German, like the oracles of old, Georgie wrote, the shamankas and shamans spoke in an extraordinarily flowery and unclear language so that what they said could be applicable in all cases, whatever the outcome. His disbelief in their practices was all but cancelled out by his utter amazement over their poetic gifts, which he considered not only naturally effusive, but also astonishingly sophisticated. Georgie, I, I hope I'm saying that right, Georgie or Georgie, did not overlook the importance of their costumes and the requisites they always used, especially the tambourine. So I think in uh, the Greek myth mythologies, Odysseus and his encounters with the Cyclops, I think these Cyclops are just shamans with their with their drums being their eye. Anyways, um. Nor did he overlook the subtle forms they adopted in order to continue their ancient practices without threat of punishment from those who knew how to make bigger medicine, uh, whether clergymen, physicians, or adventurers with firearms. In likening such practitioners of shamanism to what contemporary Europeans called enthusiasts, Georgie made a very clear connection between religion, psychology, medicine, anthropology, philosophy, and the arts. The volume of illustrations accompanying one of his triangular reports provides some of the best interpretations of the phenomenon of shamanism as still extant in the late 18th century. Throughout the 18th century, the incipient dis discipline of anthropology welcomed whatever such intelligent, courageous, and oftentimes rather dashing explorers sent back. Uh, usually there were just reports with illustrations, but in many instances, artifacts were included. The most important for the late 18th century were those uncovered by George Thomas von Asch, a Russian citizen of German descent who had been allowed to study medicine in Göttingen. His doctorate brought with it the inevitable commission in the Russian Imperial Army, but he knew how to turn disadvantage into advantage. He observed native inhabitants wherever he was stationed and collected what he thought were represent 
quantitative items. And between 71 and 1806, between 1771 and 1806, he sent them back to his alma mater. Prominently displayed for all to see was the complete outfit of a real shaman from the Tungus that somehow failed to make it to the compulsory funeral pyre. Some of the most distinguished people did go to Göttingen to see it, among other things, of course. European intellectuals of the 18th century had no alternative but to come to terms with this massive surge of exciting new information right at the moment of its arrival. Johann Gottfried Herder was one of the quickest to apply to aesthetic theory the prodigious number of ideas he had assimilated from that new information. Herder insisted that the songs of Ocean with their lively rhythm, melody, imagery, and pantomime still lived among the American Indians. See, this whole thing with pantomime, even in true romance, uh, Christopher Walken's character talks about it. Songs like those, he went on to claim, provided nothing but the truth, for they did not contain the distortions of the prosaic descriptions by European explorers. For Herder, the artist was a shaman, that is, a poet, singer, actor, prophet, seer, healer. What I tell you, motherfuckers? What I tell you, huh? Fucking Bob Marley is a shaman. Was a shaman. Fucking. <laughs> fucking MJ was a shaman too, probably, man. Okay, he cited numerous illustrations from different cultures in several epochs, but he repeatedly came back to the original singer, Orpheus, as the epitome of the shaman. Look at that, Orpheus. In an essay on minstrels, troubadours, skalds, and bards, he mentioned that the Greeks had also been savages before their civilization blossomed, and that even after it did, they remained much more closely attuned to nature than contemporary 18th century European intellectuals would allow. Yeah, because they, they, they hid the whole feminine side of everything, the fucking Roman catholic church the vatican they went and made sure all the feminine serpent worship side of everything was destroyed man anyways it's all come back though no worries it's all come back um and the greek poets he maintained here as well as elsewhere were never completely separated from okay herder went on to contend that more than three-fourths of the people on earth still believed in shamans. Three-fourths. God damn. If the details of the actual practices deferred, he explained, it was only because they were formed according to the location, climate, and particular attributes of the people. He was very much aware of what happened when the bigger medicine of orthodox religion or modern science confronted such practices. Okay, it's all in German. In Herder's opinion, nothing at all was accomplished by calling the shaman a trickster, a deceiver, or a criminal. 
although any of those words might be made to apply in various cases. Various cases, he insisted on viewing shamans as, in, as integral functionaries of the people they served. He thought they themselves had been completely taken in by what their tribe or folk believed. Otherwise, there would have been no reason for them to suffer so much fasting, solitude, emotional stress, and physical exhaustion. Nor would it have seemed reasonable for them to be willing to repeat those debilitating efforts so many times throughout their lives in order to intercede with the spirit world on behalf of their fellow tribesmen. Yeah, this is what I think was the original um, leader, king, judge, um, character. Alright. The shaman's ability not only to reach the imagination of others, but to gain complete sway over it interested herder more than the various means employed to induce frenzy or the trance. Unlike so many others who reflected upon this phenomenon in the 18th century, Herder did not find the chanting and dancing to the tambourine, the ventriloquism, legger domain, and other artful tricks contemptible. Herder was not the only member of his generation to view the performing artist as the shaman of higher civilization. The innumerable reports that the phenomenon still existed in many regions in various stages, ranging from archaic purity to civilized decline saw to it that the idea caught on mightily at the end of the 18th century. Many intellectuals, as a result, began looking closer to home. Even arch-conservatives like August Wilhelm Ifland did not choose to sidestep the issue. Ifland confronted it by writing That some people simply were imbued with ultra-sensitive faculties of perception and communication. Usually they were not the hypercultured urban types for those people knew too little about body language. The Ameri Indians, look at that, the Ameri Indians, were repeatedly cited as examples. Again and again reports had it that such peoples knew how to find often without words the clearest means of communication between souls. In regard to professional acting, Ifland was appalled that so many Europeans demeaned it by brushing it aside as a mere conjuring trick. Well, not anymore. Now actors are... Okay, the next generation took up such ideas and put them together in an exciting yet potentially threatening way. Friedrich Schlegel equated all thinking with divining. Hmm. Ludwig Tieck thought of Shakespeare as the consummate shaman. Look at this. Look at that. I'm not the only one who thinks this. Ludwig Tieck thought of Shakespeare as the consummate shaman who initiated spectators into his world of magic and made them closely acquainted with hundreds of magical figures. E.T.A. Hoffman again and again wrote tales about 
bilocation, ventriloquism, legger domain, music, ecstasy, and psychic report. Enthusiastic, enthusiastic seizures could be induced easily, easily enough. The greatest problem, however, was implementing the self-cure, or as it was, learning how to halt the seizures and come out of them unscathed. Woo-woo! <laughs> As a result of all this, it became more and more fashionable to speak of the performing artist as a channeler or a medium for the world beyond mundane nature. One artist was described performing as if a higher genius spoke out of him and gave itself being. This is what I'm saying, man. We, whatever humans are, animals, get ourselves, our bodies, into a certain state so that our consciousness, literally so that our, our, our body can be a host, a temple for an archetype to, to manifest. And that's what the shamans and that's what the shamans would call the ancestors the ancestors would possess them this was grandfather this or you know fucking uncle that or auntie that this or it's like your your it's like your dna is carrying with you all the vibrational information memory you're you're basically carrying your ancestors with you and your psyche is a way of projecting them out and you carry a kingdom within you the kingdom of god is within you <laughs> the kingdom of god you ye are gods fucking amen you have a fucking universe inside you and you are the god of that universe and you carry your ancestors inside you fucking the movie coco man one artist was described performing as if a higher genius spoke out of him and gave itself being again and again demonic exaltation and possession were mentioned and words like bewitched entranced enchanted and wrapped and spellbound became standard in the critical jargon that's what i'm saying whatever is inside you has to come out that will save you what is inside you if it doesn't come out will kill you We are avatars for the fucking archetypes, for the gods. Anyways, um, I should now like to conclude with an example from a writer whom Herder and most other late 18th century intellectuals knew very well. This writer not only assimilated a available information on shamanism and incorpor incorporated it into his critical theory but he also brought it brought it all into a grand aesthetic form the writer is dennis de 
Diderot. The work is Les Nevus des Rameaux. It deserves to be singled out as my concluding example because of its convoluted publication history as well as because of its subject matter. When Diderot when died in 1784, his library went to Catherine the Great in Russia. She was a very smart German princess who knew that things like rare books and literary memorabilia could provide a hedge against inflation. Huh. Well, there you go. The manuscript of Les Nevus de Rameau was among the things she obtained. A copy of it was later smuggled out of Russia and into Germany. Frederick Schiller, a physician trained in psychosomatic medicine as well as a playwright and a philosopher, got hold of it and showed it to Goethe who, having long immersed himself in matters of shamanistic, instantaneously <laughs> recognized its merits. You know, the funny thing is, I was picking an article on Gertha and shamanism, and then this one in shamanism. I picked this one, and guess what? <laughs> it included Gertha, so that worked out. I mean, I might do the Gertha one too, but I just thought it was funny. All right. Diderot's manuscript, which was written in the 1760s and pretty much completed when Herder visited him in Paris in the early 1770s, was first published by Goethe in a German translation in 1805. A manuscript in Diderot's own hand did not come to light until 1891. Le Nevu de Rameau is a satirical dialogue or dramatic conversation that brilliantly treats all the burning aesthetic issues of the mid-18th century. The most striking one for the present context occurs not in the music lesson, not in the discussions of theater, not in the references to the many Parisian operatic quarrels. It occurs when Diderot has the nephew shamanize in the cafe after being gripped by the spirit of his famous uncle's work at the opera. At first, Rameau's nephew paced up and down, humming some arias. Then he began singing louder and louder as the spirit took greater hold of him and, and deprived, deprived him of his wits. He imitated the voices, the gait, and the gestures of several characters changing his mood in quick succession. The chess players in the cafe were joined by passers-by whom the commotion had attracted. They, they, guffawed, they guffawed at first, but strangely enough, they began paying attention until he won them over completely. This is all in French. This performer managed to enchant the spectators spectators who had at first mocked him to transmit his trance to them and to unite them in a grand tribal kind of totality. It's all in French too. It's all in French. Great. I have no idea.
Diderot strikes at the very heart of the aesthetic, aesthetic paradox when he writes, uh, man. The description of Rameau coming out of his trance-like experience contains ideas and images that repeatedly appear in critical writings dealing with the highly sensitive, extraordinarily creative performing artist. Anyways, that's about it. It's all a show, anyways. <laughs> it's all a show. And you can wear all the masks. You don't have to just stick to one. You are the awareness behind the mask. Alright. Alright. I'll leave it at that. Peace.